Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I'm really excited. Uh, we have uh, Al Jazeera English's senior correspondent in Pakistan, Kamal Haidu, with us, and it feels but it feels really uh, strange for me to introduce him as uh, the the uh, renowned journalist um, he is because he's actually my uncle too. So, hello, Uncle Kamal. Yeah, I hear you guys. Uh, I'm sorry for the pause. I was hoping somebody would talk, uh, but yeah, welcome everybody. Uh, how are things in Islamabad at the moment? Uh, you were saying you've just done a report, haven't you, um, on the lockdown? Yeah, absolutely. Most of Pakistan is under lockdown. Although the government, uh, by led by Imran Khan, has decided not to impose a curfew because most of the people live below the poverty line. And that would cause huge problems as far as uh, employment and un- dealing with unemployment issues, dealing with food distribution issues. So he's um, let the essential services continue to function. But most of the country is in a state of lockdown. And for the most part, people are taking the government orders seriously. Let's not forget uh, testing, testing. And testing, that is what the World Health Organization has recommended. Pakistan has received considerable help from China as far as those test kits are concerned. But I was speaking to a senior medical um, a doctor who told me that so far, Pakistan's uh, growth as far as this particular problem is concerned is uh, not alarming. However... Uh, that does not mean they let the guard down because they, although there has been no exponential rise in the number of cases, all that could change. So everybody nervous and hoping that the situation won't escalate because Pakistan is a developing country already confronted with economic problems. And the UN has warned that up to 170 countries would need over $2 trillion just to help them come out of this economic mess that has been created because of the pandemic. I mean, my fingers are crossed for everyone in Pakistan that you don't um, get a huge spike like we've seen in some countries in Europe. But um, we're here today to talk to you about your career and in particular your relationship with uh, Afghanistan. Yes, Afghanistan. Uh, became something that I got really interested in when I was studying at Richmond College, London. It was Christmas holidays back in 1979. 
all the foreign students had already gone for holidays. But because uh, we were far away from home, we were still on the campus when we saw the news of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan on Christmas Eve 1979. And it sent shockwaves across the world, especially for me because the province that I come from in Pakistan was straddling or straddles rather the Afghan border. And I knew that the Soviets and Afghanistan would pose a major threat to Pakistan because of what the British used to call the great game. And their push into Balochistan would have brought them to the warm waters of the Arabian Sea at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. Tell us about what Afghanistan was like before the war with the Soviet Union. What what state was the country in? Before the Russian invasion, the trouble had already started, which then led to the Russian invasion. But um, when the king was ruling Afghanistan, that is Zahir Shah, the country was uh, in relative, so relative peace. Um, it was also a major road link from Europe uh, through Iran, then traveling through Afghanistan. Many people would come into Pakistan and go onwards to India. So it was a popular tourist uh, trail, also popular with the hippies at that time. Afghanistan was uh, an introverted uh, fundamentalist society, but quite tolerant of foreigners who were passing through their territory. So. Uh, a relative calm and peace. However, while the king was busy whining and dining and running across the country uh, with his penchant for hunting and all, most of the Afghans lived below the poverty line and the rural urban divide uh, was posing a threat to the future stability of that country. Well, you've interviewed many people who remember this. Uh, what are your impressions of the day in December 1979 when the Russians invaded Afghanistan? Because this is really the beginning and the rise of the Taliban, isn't it? Well, um, the Taliban came much later, but it definitely started the Mujahideen groups, which were the freedom fighters. Uh, the Afghans were always uh, wary of foreign incursions, always fought back historically. So it was no surprise. But what happened after the Soviet invasion is that the United States and her allies pumped in tens of billions of dollars of weapons to arm the Afghans to the teeth, to bog down the Russians in the mountains of Afghanistan. And so what happened really was that that fight went on for almost a decade, cost 1.5 million Afghan lives, but after the Russians withdrew in 89, the Afghan Mujahideen started fighting amongst themselves. And in the early 19s, uh, uh, in 1990s, uh, what you saw was internecine warfare, warlords ruling the country, fighting turf wars, ethnic lines were divided. Uh, linguistically and, uh, and ethnically. So apparently um, the country fell into chaos. The warlords started uh, meeting out atrocities against ordinary citizens. And that's what led to a reactionary movement, a vigilante movement, you could say, with the rise of the Taliban, who, who then got support of the people to come into uh, the forefront. So that happened in the... Uh, 
early started in the early 90s but happened uh, they took over power by the mid 90s they were in control over 90% of the territory so it was the aftermath of the russian withdrawal and the polarization or balkanization of afghanistan that led to this reactionary movement which uh, the people saw as a harbinger of hope and the people decided to tra- throw their support uh, behind the taliban so that's what led to the rise of the taliban um if we can just skip back a bit to the the war with the soviets um what are your memories of the conflict because i i know my other uncle um he was with the mujahideen wasn't he and also while you were in england uh, my grandfather was sending you information about what was happening absolutely actually um you know you have to understand that the ussr was a formidable military power and because the united states uh, had cold shouldered the afghan request for military and economic assistance back in the late 50s and 60s that the afghans turned to the russians and therefore the russians not only armed them but also trained the defense forces who were then uh, playing the key role uh, in supporting the russian invasion of afghanistan uh for the first few months the people took in the shock of the invasion there was overwhelming military superiority the russians had all kinds of uh, weapons and arrayed against them were a uh, uh, ragtag uh, small groups of resistance forces who tried to stop the russians but um what ensued was a a long protracted guerrilla warfare most of the afghan uh, fled across the border into pakistan from there um, they got support from the western back countries particularly the united states with money and weapons and then these mujahideens crossed over and fought a long and brutal war against the russian occupation forces so uh, most of rural afghanistan was destroyed because it was the people in rural afghanistan who rose up against uh, the afghans who were supporting the russians and who paid the dearest price uh, most of the villages were razed to the ground and most of the casualties happened in the hinterland and far flung areas of afghanistan and what was our family involvement in the war well uh, jamal was uh, basically interested uh, to see how these people were fighting against the superpower he went in out of curiosity's sake but soon found himself making more and more forays into afghanistan attaching himself with some of the resistance groups out there he was fascinated by the afghan tactics that were employed against the most superior well armed military force like the ussr uh, and of course it was fascinating for him to see how these people whom the russians thought they would be able to overwhelm were able to fight against such odds so he would go frequently my father would not be happy to find out afterwards but uh, jamal was adamant and somehow attracted to these uh, people who were fighting against the superpower and in the meantime um your father my grandfather he was sending you cuttings while you were studying in london wasn't he from so that you could read about the conflict 
Absolutely. Uh, we had access to the BBC, ITN, Channel 4. We had access to The Guardian, The Independent, some of the finest newspapers in the world. My father at the time was a harbour master Abu Dhabi port. He would send me cuttings from all the international media about the bravado of these uh, local Afghans who had no experience in conventional warfare and how valiantly they were fighting to defend their turf and their homeland. Alex mentioned that you um, met Colonel Imam once, didn't you? Pakistan's Consul General in Afghanistan. Can you tell us a bit more about him and who he was? Yes, in fact, um, yeah, um, he was an interesting man. Um, I came to know him very well. He was uh, with the Special Forces here in Pakistan. Um, the last time I met him before he was killed by the Pakistani Taliban, he showed me a piece of rock from the Berlin Wall, which was presented by the CIA head uh, to Colonel Imam uh, in recognition of Pakistan's services in, uh, in bringing that wall down and, of course, referring to his role in Afghanistan. Uh, he had spent a lot of time with the Mujahideen. In fact, he had trained all the known figures like Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, um, and many others, uh, including Mullah Omar, who later became the leader of the Taliban. He was very passionate about his job. He had blended in as far as his dressing code was concerned. And he was the uh, consul general in Herat, which was uh, very close to the Iranian border uh, at the time when the Iranians were threatening to uh, attack the Taliban-led government in Afghanistan. So... Imam had quite a history. Um, unfortunately, he was killed uh, while he arranged an interview for Channel 4 and he was taken hostage uh, during that interview in Pakistan's tribal areas and then shot uh, by the Pakistani Taliban. So uh, he used to tell me that he would spend nights with the U.S. Special Forces uh, sometimes inside Afghanistan when they would cross the border that they would share jokes and talk about the Afghan war. But he was also disappointed about the fact the Americans, uh, how they stopped supporting the Afghans after the withdrawal of Russian forces. He was very bitter about the fact that these Afghans were left on their own and the country became a forgotten war. He said that uh, when the Russians agreed to leave in um, Afghanistan, uh, the Americans actually had a secret agreement with the U.S., uh, with the USSR, sorry, that uh, in case the Russians were willing to withdraw from Afghanistan, that uh, the Americans would stop all uh, support to the Mujahideen. So apparently the Mujahideen, on the other hand, uh, wanted recognition from the United States as the legitimate government after the Russian withdrawal because they left uh, their strongman, uh, Najibullah, in Kabul, in charge. And what the Mujahideen wanted was recognition on the international level. So apparently what happened, uh, and this is something that Imam narrated to me, saying that the Americans and the Pakistanis at the time devised a plan that the Americans, of course, saying that they would recognize the Mujahideen if they took a major city in Afghanistan. So... An elaborate plan was drawn for a frontal assault on Jalalabad, 
is a, a city held by a militia led by Abdul Rashid Dostam, who, by the way, is in a senior position in the Afghan political equation even today. And because they had the advantage of the artillery, air power and armor, these Mujahideen who were guerrilla warfare trained did not stand a chance. And when they went for that assault on Jalalabad, they suffered a crushing defeat, although many of their fighters were able to penetrate the outer perimeters of Jalalabad airport. So that and the fact that the Russians were now withdrawing and the fact that the Americans stopped all the military assistance left these uh, Mujahideen fighters high and dry, and that basically then led to the fracturing of Afghanistan's uh, unity when uh, warlords started to fight for control of their turf and plunge the country into anarchy. Could you tell us what sort of state Afghanistan was in after the withdrawal? Well, after the withdrawal of Russian forces, apparently... There were so many uh, fighting groups uh, led by so many uh, warlords that what happened was that, let's give you an example of Kabul. Uh, Kabul fell into three hands. On the one hand, you had Ahmad Shah Massoud, the legendary Tajik commander known as the Lion of the Panjshir, controlling certain sections of the city. You had the Hazaras, uh, who are a minority Shia faction, uh, mostly from Bamiyan province, uh, in their part of the city in Kabul. And then to top it all, you had another warlord, Sayaf, and the Hazaras were caught in the middle. Every day, these warlords fought uh, amongst each other, sometimes raining thousands of rockets on the city in one single day. So Afghanistan... The people were in trauma. Uh, The roads were uh, being uh, manned by various factions who meted out all kinds of atrocities against the civilian population. And in Kandahar, these warlords fought over young boys. They had a pension for young boys and they fought uh, literally uh, battles in the city over boys and over dogfights. It was total chaos, and the people of Afghanistan saw their own heroes, their warriors who fought so bravely against the Russians, now meeting out all kinds of horrors on the ordinary population. And that played a pivotal role in bringing about this reactionary movement, which today is known as the Afghan Taliban. I really want to know more about the social aspects. So the widows, the orphans, what was life like for these people? Well, first of all, because there was heavy attrition, most of the men had been killed in the fighting. Uh, There were families uh, who had orphans. These orphans had no one to look after them. Uh, So most of them were taken into madrasas, which are religious schools, um, so that they could get at least basic religious education. Um, most of the families who had some money or resources uh, just went across the border into Pakistan because they could not stand uh, the uncertainty of their daily routines and lives which were in danger. And so 
Afghanistan was like a state in a state of shock. In fact, I told a friend of mine, Afghanistan was like a body which had suffered cardiac arrest and was literally in his death throes until the Taliban shock revived it and uh, brought it back. But it was still in the ICU. Uh, the situation was far from normal. The country was battered by decades of war. And then, of course, the atrocities committed by the warlords. So you would feel as if you were in a different time zone, as if the time had stopped because uh, the roads were completely battered. It used to take uh, seven, eight hours just to drive a few kilo hundred kilometers on the highway. So the country was in a, a state of shambles and ruins. Entire city blocks were obliterated. Um, and so it was literally a country trying to limp back to a state of normalcy. Um, I, what made you want to go in and see it for yourself? Well, first of all, uh, what was happening was that when the Taliban first appeared on the horizon, um, I, all I read about them was things like uh, extremists, obscurantists, uh, and I really wanted to know what led to the rise of these young students led by a reclusive Mullah Omar, uh, who many people had not heard about earlier. I wanted to know what brought about this change in Afghanistan. And so I was very curious to find out for myself rather than relying on books and, uh, books written by authors who had never even stepped into Afghanistan. I wanted to experience for myself, talk to the people, find out what led to this massive transformation and to find out for myself what these people went through. And it was like a magnet because I remember uh, I said to myself that Afghanistan was like an addiction and a nightmare. I said, you know, it's an addiction for those who are welcomed as friends and a nightmare for those who cast an evil eye on its, on that country. So I saw the hospitality of the people, poor people who uh, shared their dry bread with such passion that it turned out to be a sumptuous meal. And I saw that despite the scars of war, despite the losses, the people had a proud will to survive and still retain their hospitality and specially looking after guests. And on that particular note, I realized that as long as you could convince them that you were a guest and that you were not here for any political purpose, but to find out the truth, they welcomed you with open arms. So I had quite a time to try and understand these people by living amongst them, I lived almost five years um, uh, inside Afghanistan during Taliban rule. I felt quite secure to be able to travel anywhere in the country with my dome tent, pitch my tent on the side of the highway. And I never felt insecure because the one thing the Taliban did bring was peace and security across the areas that they controlled. So... We talked a bit about how America's relationship with Afghanistan, um, that they, they dropped their support of the Mujahideen. Um, but 
let's talk about just before you went into Afghanistan um, in 1998. Um, something happens, doesn't it, um, to turn America from uh, uh, still being seen as a friendly power into an aggressor for Afghanistan. Um, and it's so in 1998, in February, Bin Laden co-signs a fatwa saying that it is the individual duty of every Muslim to kill Americans and their allies. And at the beginning of August, there are bombings at two embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. So 224 people are killed, more than 4,000 injured. And this is what brings al-Qaeda into focus for the US for the first time, really, and places Bin Laden on the FBI's most wanted list. Why is Afghanistan involved? He has a long-standing association with the country, doesn't he? Well, uh, you know, when you look at the Americans, uh, the Americans were were known as heroes because they went out of their way to help the Afghans against the Russians. But what the people didn't realize was that there was a cold war going on. The Americans wanted to avenge Vietnam. Here they had a great opportunity to do so. And while they were helping the Afghans, uh, they had their own interests. What happened is that when um, the United States saw the Taliban sweep across the country, they were quite receptive to the idea because at that time they wanted to bring a pipeline from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan into Pakistan and then onwards to India, which was a lucrative uh, venture. And the Americans even had a short romance with the Afghan Taliban thinking that they would be able to provide a conduit and security for a pipeline passing through Afghan territory. Unical, an American company, was in charge of that. So, uh, but what happened was that because Osama bin Laden was already in Afghanistan when the Taliban took over, uh, he, of course, had come in on the invitation of Professor Rabbani when he started running out of options in the Sudan, when the Americans exerted pressure on Sudan to either hand him over or to throw him out of their territory. Uh, What happened was that uh, when the Taliban took over and swept over Afghanistan, Osama had no choice but to join the Taliban. And although he had come uh, when Professor Rabbani uh, was in uh, in charge in Afghanistan, he found himself uh, uh, with his back to the wall and decided to join the Afghan Taliban. Apparently, when the uh, East Africa bombings happened. The Americans pointed the blame at uh, uh, Al-Qaeda's doorstep. Al-Qaeda at the time was uh, in Afghanistan. They had switched their allegiance to the Taliban. And so um, uh, the Americans wanted that uh, uh, the uh, Taliban should hand over Osama bin Laden. But Afghan tradition, as far as guests who sought sanctuary or refuge in their country, was something which was uh, a red line. In fact, it's interesting to note that during the Second World War, when the British were building barricades along the Khyber Pass um, because they feared that the Germans would overrun Stalingrad and eventually sweep across into Afghanistan, they demanded from the Afghan government that all German diplomats should be handed over and the Afghans put their foot down because it went against their customs, their tribal customs to hand over uh, a diplomat or a guest who was uh, uh, seeking refuge in their country. So 
And the Americans, on the other hand, uh, were not able to convince the Afghan Taliban with substantial evidence. In fact, uh, most of the evidence was based on um, television interviews that bin Laden had done. Um, and uh, that was not enough to convince the Taliban that Osama would get a fair trial. And um, so they said, if as long as we know that he can get a fair trial in a third country, we would be willing to think about uh, sending him out, but we would not hand him over to the Americans. And I think that became a sticking point. What the Afghan Taliban did not expect was that the U.S. would launch a massive cruise missile attack uh, in 1998. And it was that particular attack which changed um, the people's perception altogether because the Americans were held in high esteem and all of a sudden they were now seen as the aggressor uh, committing a, uh, aggression against a country that was already uh, ruined and destroyed by decades of war. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What did all of this mean for you in Islamabad? Yeah, it was, um, you know, um, what had happened was after the attacks uh, in East Africa uh, and the fact that the Americans were pointing the finger of blame at Afghanistan, everybody held their breath because they knew it was now a question of time when the Americans would go against bin Laden. Nobody knew what shape or form that attack would take uh, uh, when it did come. Everything uh, centered around not if, but when the attack would take place. And so uh, the news was all about uh, America seeking revenge for the attacks against her diplomatic facilities in East Africa. And there was a flurry of activity. Uh, everybody was trying to make guesses. Um, I was assigned as a, as a freelancer. I thought this was a great opportunity because it was my hobby to read history and especially follow Afghanistan. And so I got a freelance assignment with the Sunday Times and I had to draw a possible scenario, what shape the attack might take place. And interestingly, um, I had a very dear friend from the Irish Navy. I went to him and I said, uh, do you think the attack will happen? And he said, you bet it will. And I said, uh, how? When? From where? And uh, he just said he had a hunch that it would come from the Arabian Sea because the Americans had positioned their uh, naval assets in the region within striking range. And he guessed that it would either be 
a cruise missile attack or an aircraft carrier bomb attack where the fighters would fly. Uh, but the question again was, uh, how would they get into a landlocked country without passing through Iran or Pakistan? Iran was out of the question because the Shah had been um, removed. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini was in power. They were very anti-American. They were American hostages at the embassy in Tehran, uh, at the U.S. embassy. So the Americans could not use that territory. However, the only option was to use Pakistani airspace either for a airstrike or cruise missile strike. And because um, both India and Pakistan were arch rivals and both nuclear armed, the Americans were afraid that if the Pakistani radars picked up these missiles, they would think that it is an Indian attack on Pakistan, which could spark a nightmare situation. So. A senior uh, U.S. commander was in Islamabad. He had not informed the Pakistanis about the impending attack. But once those missiles were airborne, uh, he made sure to tell the Pakistanis that these were U.S. missiles uh, heading for Afghanistan and not on targets in Pakistan and not Indian missiles. Um, so the attack does go ahead um, on Sudan as well as Afghanistan, doesn't it, as Operation Infinite Reach. And this is, um, if I get my terminology right, I think it's the first time that the US launches a preemptive strike against a violent non-state actor. Absolutely. It depends on how you look at it. I always um, wonder whether Osama was a huge threat that he was made out to be, no doubt that uh, the Americans wanted him. They were convinced that he was responsible for those attacks. No doubt about that. Uh, but it had uh, other implications. Uh, the Americans, in retrospect, uh, one can think about it. If the Americans could have conducted a more precise strike to take their man out because the Afghan Taliban were not aware of all the planning that al-Qaeda was up to. And most probably the uh, Taliban leadership was not even aware that 9-11 was planned by al-Qaeda in uh, uh, Afghan territory because the Arabs always kept to themselves. Uh, they had their own uh, uh, quarters, living quarters. Uh, they intermingled with the Afghan Taliban, but never divulged their international plans with the Afghan Taliban. It has to be understood that for the most part, Taliban or not Taliban, the Afghans were introverted fundamentalists. And I think you have to realize that even at the height of the Soviet invasion, you never heard of a bombing in uh, targeting Russian civilians, uh, no suicide attacks, uh, no attack was carried out on foreign ground against the Russians. So that was not an Afghan thing to do. They were introverted fundamentalists. Al-Qaeda, on the other hand, were extroverted. They had an international agenda. Um, and, uh, of course, the Afghan Taliban not always informed about their plans. But uh, by complicity or by the fact that they had given Osama sanctuary, uh, they also became a legitimate target for the Americans. Did, uh, did the journalists start piling up in Islamabad after the attack? Absolutely. Um, what happened was that the Afghan Taliban had recognition from three states only, 
Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Pakistan. So they had, uh, they were operating embassies and consulates in these three countries. And so the only way to get a visa was to travel to Pakistan because uh, there were more restrictions in uh, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia for journalists. So uh, once the uh, missile attack took place, in fact, the journalists had started gathering because everyone had their own intelligence of the impending attack that would take place. And so Pakistan became the hub because it was also the only route for travel into Afghanistan. There was a air embargo. And so the only way to get across was to drive through the Khyber Pass in the northwest frontier province, now Khyber Pukhtunkhwa province, or uh, Baluchistan province through Chaman. So that was the only logical, the only route available for travel, in fact, at the time into Afghanistan. And so the journalists rushed to Islamabad uh, and made a beeline at the Taliban embassy to seek visas so they could go and cover the aftermath of the U.S. attack on the several targets located inside Afghan territory. Uh, it's fair to say that the Taliban were stunned by um, the American missile attack. They never thought they would uh, launch salvos of cruise missiles on their country, and they claimed it was a clear and flagrant violation of international law and an act of war. And in fact, the strikes were condemned by the UN Security Council. But you had a rare opportunity to talk to the Taliban information minister in Kandahar about their reaction. And what did he say to you? Well, Abdul Haib... Mutmain was uh, Mullah Omar's uh, spokesman in Kandahar. And after the attack, I called him to ask him uh, what was the Taliban reaction because the Taliban uh, were not very um, uh, vocal. Uh, so apparently he told me, he said, look, the Americans have been pleading with us that we want to try Osama bin Laden for involvement in these bombings but the Taliban said they had no evidence uh, they wanted concrete evidence for the Americans to prove uh, that bin Laden was indeed directly involved in those attacks um, the Americans were not able to convince the Taliban uh, uh, with the kind of evidence they had uh, so uh, Abdul Hai Mutmain said to me that on the one hand they're pleading with us uh, saying that we, he will have a fair trial and at the same time they're trying to kill the man. So that is something which is totally contradictory to the American statements that they would give bin Laden a fair chance to defend himself. And the Americans, on the other hand, said that was a ruse from the Taliban and that it was unacceptable. So it, indeed, uh, the Afghans had their own grounds to say that uh, here you are, telling us that we want bin Laden, we want to give him a fair trial, and at the same time, you're trying to kill the man. Am I right that at this point, you, as a journalist, you decide that you have to get moving? Absolutely. Um, it was a rare opportunity because the country was closed, and I uh, realized that it would be a golden opportunity for me to try and cross the border and uh, I got very lucky because uh, I used some uh, influence locally and got through to the Afghan Taliban uh, embassy and told them that my purpose was to go 
and find out the situation on the ground, not necessarily related to Al-Qaeda or what happened in that cruise missile attack, but to find out what was happening across the country. And so uh, I got lucky. They decided to give me a visa. And I thought it was the luckiest moment in my life that I would be one of the few journalists to be able to go through that country. I traveled across the country all the way from Torkham uh, to Kabul, from Kabul to Ghazni to Kandahar, and eventually to Herat, because at the time the Iranians were threatening to attack the Afghan Taliban uh, because um, the Afghan Taliban had taken several truck drivers who were carrying weapons for the anti-Taliban militias and also the fact that the Iranians had lost a few diplomats uh, in the consulate in Mazar-e-Sharif in northern Afghanistan uh, when um, pro-Taliban fighters stormed their consulate there. So it was a rare opportunity and it was an experience of a lifetime to be able to travel in a taxi cab several thousand kilometers and travel from one end of the country to the other. I have to ask you, just from a purely selfish family point of view, what did mummy, that's my grandmother, your mother, what did mummy say when you said you were going to Afghanistan? Well, first of all, uh, there was disbelief. Everybody thought I was kidding. <laughs> but uh, uh, eventually they realized I, I was able to convince them that this meant a lot to me and that uh, I had the rare opportunity. I, I said to my mom that there were several brave women journalists from all over the world uh, who would give an arm and a leg to get that visa. And so I should avail the opportunity to travel. And it was because of her blessings um, and her support. Uh, every time I remember I would leave for the trip, she would say, uh, Godspeed, and that I have left you uh, in God's protection. So go ahead and do what you have to do. And that basically uh, was a morale booster for me that gave me the strength uh, it, without the support of my mom and uh, my wife. That would have been an impossible adventure or a venture to think about. I just, uh, she was, we lost her, didn't we, last year, but she was quite an incredible woman. Um, I just have to ask you, you've mentioned this already. You got, you got in a taxi to go. You took a guide and you just got in a taxi. That's how you got to Afghanistan. Yes, in fact, the minute we crossed the border into Afghanistan, my translator negotiated with this, uh, Afghan taxi driver, Shalane, and uh, uh, obviously we knew because we had experience that the first thing to do is to befriend the driver because your life would depend on it. And uh, so it was quite an experience to see uh, this driver sometimes take out uh, a cigarette loaded with hashish and smoke. Uh, we could not tell him to stop. Um, we could not tell him to stop because we thought he would go into a fit of rage and abandon us in the middle of nowhere. So I would continue to console my translator that uh, please put up with it. He's obviously survived this long and that uh, most probably he'll get us to where we need to go. You didn't look right, did you? 
Well, you know, um, if you really look at it, um, I, I mean, it depends on which way you look at it. Uh, because the first time I went in, I was clean shaved. And I, I, I felt as if I was a fish out of water because everywhere I looked, people had were sporting long beards, wearing turbans. And here I was with a clean shave, uh, standing out as a sore thumb. And I realized this was not going to work. And so I decided to let loose my beard um, and also to wear a turban to blend in and to feel more comfortable and to make the people around me more comfortable as well. You saw... um Tell us a bit about what it was like driving in that terrain, but also you found uh, British forces insignia, didn't you, by the roadside on your way through the Khyber Pass? Yes, in fact, uh, Pakistan's Khyber Pass is legendary in its own way uh, because this was the gateway to India historically, Uh, all the way dating back to the times of the Persian incursions, to Alexander, to the Mughals, all passing through Afghan territory, uh, through the Khyber Pass. And then apparently after the East India Company took over India and the British expanded towards the northwest frontier, uh, they came against the Sikh Empire, which had swept across, captured a lot of territory, um, from the Pushtun tribes. And when the British defeated the Sikhs, they took over this territory. Uh, there were many incursions into Afghanistan that led to the First and Second Afghan War. The British set up, uh, built uh, fortifications along the Khyber Pass and uh, they chiseled away uh, the insignias of the various British regiments uh, on the rock side along the highways, a very historic place um, with the telltale signs of a very rich and bloody past, I must say, because uh, at each corner, the local tribes would fight against these British in the beginning. Uh, and uh, But that uh, was the front line uh, for the British, which later, later became the Duran line after the British agreed with the Afghan king uh, to draw a line that would divide um, British India from Afghanistan. You've mentioned the horrific fighting at Jalalabad in the Soviet war. What was it like to see that for yourself? When I first went to Afghanistan, I came across this uh, post which is situated, it's like a, a small area known as Samar Khel. Uh, this is on the outskirts of Jalalabad. And when I first went in, I couldn't help but uh, reminisce the times when we were keeping a close eye on the situation when the casualties were coming across the border into Pakistan uh, in the battle for Jalalabad. Uh, so I just said to myself, you know, it was worth pondering over what it must have been like for a guerrilla force to go over uh, an open stretch of territory against such a formidable, well-dug-in defensive positions of Jalalabad, uh, it was uh, dramatic, uh, dramatic to see the flat terrain uh, from the Pakistani border all the way to Jalalabad. And I just could only imagine what it must have felt like for those fighters who were exposed to fire 
Um, not forgetting the fact that there were a lot of telltale signs, even from the battle against the Russians. All across Afghanistan, you had Russian uh, armored personnel carriers and tanks which were destroyed on the roadsides. The country was strewn with landmines all over the place. So although I did not uh, um, uh, witness the fighting in Jalalabad uh, from the front lines, I followed it very closely uh, from the Pakistani side. You've said that some parts of the city look like ancient ruins when you were there later on. Um, but wh- you saw one place which had survived, didn't you? And you stayed there. Yes, apparently um, there was a hotel in Kabul, uh, the Intercontinental Hotel, which was uh, famous with the jet setters of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, this was a building perched on high ground overlooking Kabul. And as you drove through the city, you could see all around just ruins with no roofs, walls blown away, electric pylons look like uh, teeth trainers with so many bullet holes in them. Uh, the whole city was in shambles, but this hotel had survived, although the top floors of the hotel were damaged and not functional anymore. The hotel had still survived. And there were a few buildings in the foreign ministry which had uh, uh, very little damage to them. But overall, uh, it was a stark uh, contrast to see the few surviving buildings that uh, still uh, function and at the same time see entire buildings in ruins. In fact, uh, I remember that uh, when um, after the Russian withdrawal, Uh, The people looted the radio station in Jalalabad. Uh, They tore away big sections of the equipment and it was all sold as crap on on the Pakistani side. So it was literally as if this country had endured a war and it had actually for decades. It was unbelievable to see uh, the cities, such grand cities as Jalalabad, as Kandahar, as Kabul with their beautiful buildings uh, all lying in shambles. Then you went on to Kandahar and you were under constant surveillance, weren't you? Absolutely, uh, because our plan was to sneak into Herat, which was uh, further west of Kandahar, and the fact that Kandahar was at the time the inner sanctum of the Taliban This is where Mullah Umar had his office. We were staying in a small hotel, um, which was not far from Mullah Umar's office. And because we looked uh, quite suspicious, given the fact that we were carrying bags and wore hiking boots, uh, it rose a lot of suspicion. And people were wondering what we were doing in Kandahar because we were not going to tell anybody of uh, our travel plans to Herat. There were strict uh, regulations that you had to inform the Taliban foreign ministry uh, representatives in Kandahar and seek permission. And I thought my best bet was to try our luck with the Kandahari driver and my translator uh, wearing the local garb and to try and sneak out first thing in the morning out of Kandahar to be able to reach Herat, which was going to be 
um, you know, at the forefront of the story should the Iranians attack. And at the time, it was uh, as if it was not a question of if, but when the Iranians would strike uh, across Afghanistan. So it was indeed uh, quite an adventure, something that I had not experienced in the past. Uh, but we were lucky that we operated under the radar and were able to leave before first flight uh, from Kandahar to Herat. Tell us about trying to charge your one camera battery. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, uh, one of our friends had given us a high aid. Um, it was just about the end of the high aid technology, but uh, we didn't realize it had only one battery. And we also didn't realize that most uh, parts of Afghanistan did not have electricity. Uh, so when we did, uh, at the first it was uh, quite a task to hide the camera sometime literally in our spare tire so that we would not erode any suspicion uh, given the fact that the Taliban were very much against anybody with cameras. They would uh, confiscate and break those cameras. Um, so it was quite a grueling exercise to try and find the proper connections and an electricity out, outlet to charge this camera, which took forever and sometimes would let us down just when we needed it. So that made our journey even more suspicious and sinister to carry this silly camera with us. But without that, we would have no evidence of what we were recording. I still had my still camera. Um, uh, the one trick that we used to follow is to just calculate what the viewfinder would uh, find and take pictures without even bringing it close to your eye so that it would be, um, you know, uh, low key and nobody would realize that you were actually taking pictures. Tell us how this journey ended. You were exhausted at the end of it, weren't you? Absolutely. Uh, by the time we reached Herat, uh, we realized that we had no place to stay because uh, checking into a hotel would immediately alert the local authorities about uh, us. And so uh, we just kept driving around the city in circles, not knowing what to do. Um, we had come so far and uh, realized that perhaps the whole exercise would end it would be an exercise in futility but uh, as luck would have it uh, somebody got a whiff of our presence uh, these were students from one of the islamic universities located on the outskirts of uh, iraq city and they took us in for the night and uh, tried to reassure us that we were safe in safe hands gave us afghan melons and um, uh, gave us Afghan hospitality over dinner and then first thing in the morning got us over to the Pakistani consulate where I met uh, Colonel Imam for the first time. That of course was a breather because at one stage we thought that we had come all this way for nothing. Yeah, uh, we wanted to charge our camera and uh, uh, because there was no electricity in Herat uh, we started searching for somebody who would be able to uh, charge our camera through a generator. We were lucky to find somebody. Although it took several hours to charge that camera, it gave us enough battery power to be able to film some of our journey on tape. Uh, 
um, and to bring that back with us. So then the Iranian invasion didn't happen, did it? No, it didn't, uh, because the United Nations uh, Special Envoy for Afghanistan, Lathkar Ibrahimi, uh, undertook uh, shuttle diplomacy, uh, met Mullah Omar, and tried to convince the Iranians as well to back off. And uh, eventually, better sense uh, prevailed, and the Iranians did not invade. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Afghanistan and your personal experiences. I really hope you'll come back another time to tell us about the next phase. Uh, well, I'd be proud to be a part of uh, the show. So thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you uh, to our friend Elena in Poland as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great having you. We would like to uh, wish... Colonel now, Tom Moore, a very happy 100th birthday today and to once again congratulate him on his stellar fundraising efforts for the NHS. Uh, war hero, civic hero, what a man. Uh, many, many happy returns. Join us tomorrow uh, when we will be talking to the irrepressible uh, Dr Estelle Peronk, um, who will be talking to us about Elizabeth I's image and how it was perceived, particularly by the French, in her lifetime. That one is uh, really interesting uh, and she's an absolute riot you will love her don't forget that you can become a patron of history hack for as little as one dollar a month um, and help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis uh, which we would muchly like to do we'd like to thank our latest patrons they are mark kearns wendy nicholas kaiser and david fleshborn thank you very much very much appreciated there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 